Welcome to Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. Today, we have the honor of speaking with Professor William B. Allen about our national character and whether there are any common commitments or beliefs that can still serve as the glue for a healthy civil society. Well, let's go. Givers, Doers, and Thinkers introduces listeners to the fascinating people and important ideas at the heart of American civil society. We speak with philanthropists, nonprofit leaders, social entrepreneurs, historians, journalists, and anyone else who will help us understand contemporary civil society's achievements and failures. We also sprinkle in practical advice for nonprofit leaders and fundraisers. My name is Jeremy Beer, and thanks for joining us. Okay, thanks for being with us. Uh, my guest, William B. Allen, Emeritus Professor of Political Philosophy in the Department of Political Science and Emeritus Dean of James Madison College at Michigan State University. And that's a wonderful program, by the way, in the Madison uh, College at, at Michigan State. Uh, he's someone I've known about for a long time, but have never had the pleasure of meeting, so I'm particularly pleased to have him as a guest. Dr. Allen is a prolific author and scholar. Uh, he is the um, author of dozens, if not hundreds, of articles and essays. And his books include Rethinking Uncle Tom, The Political Philosophy of H.B. Stowe, and George Washington, America's First Progressive. Very recently, from 2018 to 2020, Dr. Allen was the Senior Scholar in Residence in the Benson Center for the Study of Western Civilization at the University of Colorado. He has served on the United States National Council for the Humanities and as Chairman and Member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. And he is currently... Chief Operating Officer at the Center for Urban Renewal and Education in Washington, D.C., usually uh, shortened as CURE, at least among those I know. Welcome, Dr. Allen. Thanks for being with us. It is a pleasure to join you, Mr. Beer. Wonderful day it is. Seems like a good time to be having a conversation about civil society, society uh, with everything that's going on uh, in our world. Um, what... Um, Let's just talk about uh, Cure first, if you don't mind. I'd love to know and, and have our listeners know what the Center for Urban Renewal and Education does. What's its mission? And what, how does it go about it? Well, Cure, of course, was founded by Star Parker some quarter century ago. And she did so specifically in response to her own experience, having been a young unwed mother who had undergone frequent abortions and been headed on the road to destruction in an urban setting out in Los Angeles, uh, came to a rebirth when she discovered her salvation and discovered the complete destructiveness of dependence. Casting it all aside, began to refashion her life and become, in effect, an apostle of freedom from government dependence and responsibility for one's own life. In other words, she began to live out the promise of self-government as her own act of redemption. And she did that by creating an organization that could carry that message into urban communities across the country. But it wasn't enough merely to preach the, uh, as it were, the, the catechism of self-government. She also wanted to intersect with the world of policy and to bring policymakers to comprehend why they are inhumane when they essentially disrobe people by making them dependent, when they essentially strip them of their humanity by making them subject to complete dependence upon government. 
So she created Cure in order to be played on the field here in Washington by influencing and developing policies that could begin to liberate, particularly people in urban communities, from the oppressive weight of the overweening hand of government. And you've seen the most recent example of the effect of the work that she has been doing over years in which we attempt to continue to spread now in recent days when uh, she made the observation that Obama administration policies providing for the extension of government control over local zoning in the suburbs in order to foster high-density dwellings ought to be overturned by the Trump administration. And it was rather promptly after she made the recommendation, in fact, overturned. It is now a matter of controversy, of course, in the eyes of present candidates seeking to displace President Trump, but it shows the kind of thing that Cure is most concerned about, uh, trying to prevent this use of government in such a way as essentially to undermine the promise of liberty in the United States. How is on the ground, not with policymakers, but in urban communities when, when, when uh, Star Parker and others associated with Cure take that message there? How, how, is, that, how is that message received today about um, personal responsibility and overcoming dependence and taking control of one's own Well, I think you can imagine, of course, that it's received variably in terms of the environment we're living in. You know, people are under enormous pressures in some ways, uh, not to, to overdo a point, but just to consider for the moment the tremendous damage that has been done in recent months by the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, what one sees that even people who care about character and personal responsibility sometimes weaken in the face of a prevailing narrative that sees people as victim primarily and sees them therefore as requiring the intervention of government in order to rescue them. And it's such an easy, slippery slope to go from rescue to domination. So today, what Kira is most concerned about is defeating the kinds of myths of victimhood that have begun to entrap people in larger and larger numbers. And one of the things that we have just done in the past week, for example, is to print a little pamphlet, uh, reprinting George Washington's Rules of Civility, which we are going to distribute in urban communities across the country. We've already sent many of them out, and there are many more to go. Uh, The rules of civility uh, represent, of course, uh, that early, that 11-year-old youthful work of George Washington, which was essentially a copybook exercise, but which serves in many ways as a template of character and that is exemplified by the very life Washington lived. When I discovered that manuscript and edited it and brought it to the public some 40, 45 years ago, it ended up having a tremendous influence, but primarily in what we would think of as suburban America, uh, in homeschool communities, and other places far removed from the urban landscape. And what I'm doing, and what Cure is doing, is saying, these lessons are important there in the heart of the urban landscape as well. And so we're asking our pastors to begin this instruction in character, using George Washington as 
the vehicle by which to convey that. So it's not just a question of policy, but it's a question of asking, what lessons are you conveying to young people today? Do those lessons reinforce the demands of character? Are you pointing the way? Are you identifying what constitutes good character? It's not enough to tell people that they should not become mothers and fathers outside of wedlock. At an even earlier stage, you should tell them what it means to be mothers and fathers and what is the character that prepares you for that. And indeed, the more you do that, the less you will have to tell people to avoid out-of-wedlock births. Is it, um, to go back to something you had just said, uh, is the, um, the damage you say, you believe the Black Lives Matter movement has done in the last few months, is that primarily in its encouraging people to see themselves primarily as victims? Is that where the damage primarily lies in your mind? It, it lies there and in close proximity, proximity and with equal significance, it lies in the community of those who are twisted by guilt and who therefore are all too eager to see others as victims and therefore enter a kind of self-flagellating submission to the power of government in the name of atoning for ills of the past. So it works on both ends of the scale, if you want to look at it that way. And those who are themselves, the ones who experience the sense of victimhood, are as much damaged as those who experience the sense of guilt. That's interesting. Uh, I was just reading Shelby Steele's White Guilt um, last night. I just picked it up for the first time. And I think he makes a similar point, right, that um, it is that sense of guilt that Yes, is is it's a co- sort of codependent with the sense of victimhood, and it's sort of you enter into sort of a vicious cycle with these with these things. Exactly so, and of course, what characterizes the vicious cycle is that those who feel the guilt need to be, as it were, affirmed by those they take to be victim. Mm-hmm. So, so they are impatient. Right. The victim doesn't act like a victim, <laughs> and so they impose victimhood on the victim even if the victim were unsuspecting and didn't want to be a victim. It's it's a really poisonous and disastrous dynamic that's taking place, and it's been heightened in recent months in this country. Obviously it has. Um, And now we think that we're more, it seems, the perception certainly is, and I'd like your opinion on this, that we're more divided than ever. Um, I think that may well be true. But I'd also like your opinion on, on this question. Are we, are we more troubled by our dividedness than we used to be? Is, is difference somehow less tolerable now than it used to be, if that, if that question makes sense? Well, the best way for me to answer that question, sir, is to tell you that I have never so frequently been asked the question, <laughs> what do I think the future looks like? <laughs> yeah. Because people are quite anxious about the future. And I'm usually quite honest with them. And I will tell them, it seems to me that the United States, as the United States, has about a generation left. And I I mean that quite seriously. I don't mean to say that there won't be people here, they may may indeed call themselves Americans. But it's less and less clear that the constitutional heritage will still be here. So that there will be 
an America, perhaps even a United States, but maybe not even that. But it will be a very different constitutional dynamic than what we have known and therefore a very different political and moral life. So, so I think, yes, our divisions, they are uh, really reaching the level at which we can begin to question seriously whether it's possible to recover from them. Obviously, you um, are, and I know from your writings and from what you're saying now, that you think our constitutional heritage is worth saving, uh, despite its uh, imperfections. Of course, this is directly contrary, or would seem to be uh, contrary to what the authors of, say, the 1619 Project uh, would say about that heritage. Uh, what, what do you think of their, that, their history they offer us, the story of America they offer us? Well, I think the constitutional heritage is not merely worth saving. I think it is the only saving grace for humankind on this earth, i.e., I consider it to have been a providential blessing, an opportunity provided for mankind, which gives it its last opportunity, as Abraham Lincoln expressed it, the last best hope of man on earth, to try to rise to a standard that would satisfy the demands of our Lord and Savior. So we can lose that. And that means, of course, for all effective purposes, losing the Constitution, but much more than the Constitution. It means falling in to an ancient and old tribal pattern of cultural existence from which there will be no recovery. It is, it is, it is really quite a frightful thing to contemplate that possibility, but I often have to remind people that there never has been a civilization that has lasted forever, and nor is any guaranteed to do so. But there has been a civilization which is higher than any that had ever been attained before, and that was the civilization here in the United States. That was the promise of self-government, where finally, for the first time in human history, the relations between citizens and government was put in full perspective. And we see day by day that perspective being lost to sight, lost to view, so that we use excuses to let down the responsibility of self-government. And by self-government, I think you know, I don't mean mere institutional practices or even voting or majority rule, but I mean that weight of moral responsibility that falls on the shoulders of each particular self. That, that is the foundation of our government. It carries with it, of course, the obligations of conscience, and the obligations of conscience derived from the revelation of Jesus Christ, as it's expressed in Acts 5.29 when it said, we owe, meaning we the apostles in that context, but meaning all humankind, ultimately, we owe to obey God rather than man. And to base political life on that proposition, and that's what conscience is and nothing else, that is what has distinguished the heritage, the political heritage in the United States. And it is by no means sure that that can be reproduced ever again if it's lost here and yeah. now. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I think uh, what I think of when I when I hear you um, speak in this way is that we 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 too deeply profoundly believe in the narrative of progress that things will just sort of keep getting better and better uh, we always achieve a new height that um, it's impossible to sort of go backwards 
Um, and uh, there, there, there's not a sense of the fragility of the accomplishments and achievements that we've inherited, that we have a sort of uh, stewardship responsibility over those things, uh, that we can sort of take them for granted. Uh, you've, you've expressed that exceedingly well. You, you remind me of the kinds of lessons that George Washington sought to impart when he left the presidency finally in 1797. And, and what he said to the people in September 17, 1796, when he announced that he was going to retire, was very simple. He says, look, you have given your gratitude to me for what I've done, but the reality is the whole success here stands upon what you, the people, have done. And guess what, says he, its continued existence depends upon you. And his capacity to convey that message that it is not some savior, it is not the great statesman, but it is you who are the source of greatness. And it is you who are the greatest threat to this way of life if you do not accept that responsibility. That was the message he sought to convey. And it has been a struggle for us throughout our over 200 years of history to try to live up to that. We will be, uh, Dr. Allen, I want to come back. We're going to take a little break and um, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about civil society and American associational life. And maybe we'll talk a little bit about Tocqueville, but uh, we'll, we'll be right back. All right, time for a practicality. And today I'm talking to Austin Detweiler. Austin is the managing editor of Philanthropy Daily and a managing consultant here at American Philanthropic. How are you doing, Austin? I'm doing great, Jeremy. How are you? So for people who don't know, Philanthropy Daily uh, is a uh, philanthropy news and opinion uh, website, philanthropydaily.com. And it's pretty much by far the best philanthropy website out there, wouldn't you, wouldn't you say, Austin? No doubt. No question. Yeah. <laughs> Unbiased opinions. Uh, check it out if you haven't been there. But Austin, what it means is that Austin uh, follows trends in uh, philanthropy uh, for us. And uh, one thing that is on your mind right now is something that, I don't know, you'll, you'll tell me, it seems like a gathering trend. We have, it's been exacerbated, I guess, by the pandemic. Um, uh, fewer donors giving to nonprofits uh, than in quite some time, but also they're giving more money. What what do you make of all this? Yeah, I mean, we've seen it for, it's been a growing trend for a long time that uh, total charitable giving has been growing year over year, but the number of households giving to charities has been going down. Um so, you know, you wrote that piece recently about what we can expect from the economic hit uh, in the charitable sector. And you pointed out that charitable giving tends to track right around 2% of GDP. Right. As GDP has been climbing, so has charitable giving. Um, but that climb has been from fewer donors year over year. Uh, so what do you make of this? Um, why is this happening, number one? Yeah, I think there's... I see two things causing it. Um, I think they're related and they're, they're things that we're obviously interested in at Philanthropy Daily. The first one's sort of the bowling alone phenomenon. So this notion of, uh, you know, the, the decline of bowling clubs and everybody's out by themselves. We have this thinning civil society where we're all sort of separated from civic institutions and our 
churches are empty, our clubs are failing, our community centers are closing, uh, and, and the pandemic's going to make this even worse, I think. So, you know, as you say frequently, as we tell our clients, donors give to organizations because of a sense of belonging to it or identifying with it. And when we have this sort of growing alienation from civic institutions, we lose the motivation to give to them. So it's a personal and sort of like corporate uh, issue here. Um, and then I think a related problem is growing wealth inequality and this hard-nosed commitment to major gifts above all else. So we're spending all of our time fostering identity and belongingness with top tier donors. Um, and, and then that's where all of the attention goes. So you start losing anybody in different levels. Yeah, we definitely see that uh, with uh, maybe not so much with our clients, but with people who, who talk to us about maybe becoming clients sometimes. And they're, they're over-focused on only cultivating um, uh, not just four or five figure gifts, but six and seven figure gifts. And it doesn't in some ways just reflect what's happening in the country. Um, but certainly it, that doesn't seem to be maybe the best move for long-term organizational health, number one, or just for our civil society, number two. What do you think? No, it's definitely bad for organizational health. So you'll sometimes look at an organization's retention rate based on their giving levels, and you'll see really high retention at the top, right? So they're five, six, seven-figure donors. They're there long-term. But the bottom of the, the giving pyramid is just this sort of cycle of people coming in and out and in and out. And that just makes an unstable base, first of all, but it means they're not paying attention to the people down there that could rise to those bigger levels and become larger institutional supporters uh, of the organization. Not to mention uh, uh, state givers, perhaps down the line and advocate and more importantly for our conversation here, advocates for your mission and for your organization and people who are connected to something in civil society. And that's what we need. So the big picture here. We want to encourage people to not just um, cultivate smaller donors and more donors, as many as they can, for their own organization's health, but for, for our nation's health, right? Yeah, exactly. I think that's the really the, the thing that I'm really interested in is, of course, you need to focus on retaining the major donors that really support your organization in, in, a, in a major capacity. But there's something to the broader civil society goals of your organization to give people something to belong to, to be a part of, to identify with. And there are basic ways to do that that aren't time consuming or expensive to help those lower dollar donors feel like a part of your organization um, and, and, and really be advocates for you and long-term donors down the road. Well, if you want to know some of those ways that Austin's talking about, go to philanthropydaily.com, click on practicalities. We've got a lot of Practical advice on there. Austin's done a great job. Uh, hey, thanks for being with us today. Yeah, Jeremy, thank you very much. We are back with uh, Dr. William B. Allen, uh, and um, who just was talking to us about George Washington. And, and Dr. Allen, I was thinking as you were saying those words, um, you're giving us Washington's sort of peroration to the American people and how they have an obligation and responsibility to um, maintain uh, the way of life and government that have been handed to them. It would seem that our sort of genius for civil society is one way in which um, that is, uh, if Washington didn't have it in mind, that certainly sort of 
how America seems to have maintained um, its uh, self-government and um, constitutional heritage in a number of ways. Um, would you agree with that? And 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 first, and the second, what if so? What what is the role of civil society today in, in supplying a potential answer to the question, how can we all live together? Well, the way I like to phrase that question is to pose an interrogatory. George Washington set out by telling us we have a national character to establish. That was 1783. That meant it did not yet exist. We had to shape it for ourselves, he said. And so he set about leading his countrymen into that process. And we know that through the next 60 to 80 years, it was a struggle. But we also saw that character gradually emerging, emerging conformably with Washington's wishes in this regard. So that leads us to the interrogatory, the question, if there ever really did take shape the national character, that is to say the civils, the framework of civil society that Washington envisioned, which was based upon character, did that ever emerge? And if it did, does it still persist? And so the question I ask in a contemporary frame of mind is, we may once have had it, but do we still have it? And if we do no longer have it, can we undertake again the work that was undertaken in 1783? Can we fashion one? So when you put it in those terms, the question is, to what extent do we have the capacity to rebuild or to build anew a national character? And the reason I emphasize national character is not because I have a collectivist impression of what the result should be but because the, what defines the nation must be the general character of the individuals who constitute the nation, who inhabit the nation. And so what I'm really asking is, can the citizens of the United States acquire character sufficient to lend a general characterization to the country as a whole? Because there's no other way you can get there. This whole vague language about American values in the world, which supposedly strutting politicians are supposed to give evidence of, that's false and phony. The only way America can present to the world the picture of virtue, the picture of valor, the picture of integrity, is if the citizens in the country generally project that picture. We say generally, we don't say universally, we understand human nature, but generally, that must be the picture. As Tocqueville pointed out, this is a very religious people. He said, you would ask them the question, what do you think is the most important thing for preserving your liberty? And he would say, they would almost always answer our religion. Now, without entering into some kind of academic debate about what they thought about religion, if people generally believed religion were important, the society would generally be characterized by the belief that religion is important. And so we ask ourselves today, is there a general belief today that religion is important? It is less and less the case every year. And so my question then becomes, can that be reversed? It's a good question. I wish you had the answer to it. <laughs> I certainly, I certainly don't myself. But that is exactly right. It seems to me uh, we've I've talked about before on this podcast the rise of the nuns, N O N E S, um, people who are 
completely unaffiliated or feel themselves to be completely unaffiliated with any uh, particular religious tradition. Um, and, and there's no secret that that has gone in, uh, that rise has been concomitant with what seems to be a decline in civil society, associational life, you know, bowling alone and that kind of thing. Um, yeah. Do you have ideas about, may, yeah, go ahead. I, I would just say, I want to add to that reflection uh, that it is not just that they are alienated from religion, but that very alienation from religion is the expression of their alienation from civic responsibility. Mm. Yes. Interesting. I, I suppose we see that play out even in statistics. We certainly see it sort of in charitable giving. We know that those who identify as more religious are much more likely to volunteer, uh, to give money to causes and that sort of thing. And I, I, I think we, we may see it also in voting patterns and those sorts of things, but I'm not entirely certain. Well, of course, voting is a, is a really torturous thing for anybody to undergo, whether someone of faith or not of faith. Why? Because you're presented with essentially binary choices in a context in which it's very hard to parse what the fullest expression of your real intentions are when it comes to civic purpose and especially morality. So, so it's, it is like gambling. And, and if you have a people who don't believe in gambling and you expect them to look for a good outcome to result from gambling, you can expect confusion to follow. And so that's what our politics often seems like to ordinary people, and that's part of the reason people withdraw and become alienated. But every now and again, someone comes along and inspires hope that maybe here there can be a direct correlation between our aspirations and our accomplishments. Dr. More often than not, of course, that doesn't happen. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> not, as, not as often as we would like. Do, do you think someone would say, maybe listening to our conversation, who isn't completely sympathetic, um, well, no, there's still actually a very strong sense of civic responsibility. Uh, it, it's um, people. We, there's more. There's more sense now than ever that you have to hold the right views. For instance, there's more uh, stigmatization of of retrograde views than ever. Um, uh, the social, social media does a great job of sort of keeping people in line. Um, what would you say to the, you, that line of argument? You know, Mr. Beer, you know very well, of course, that uh, civic responsibility consists not in the expectations you have of others, but the expectation you have of yourself. And all these people who want to cancel others, who want to dictate to others what to say or do, are very sloth in expressing with clarity what they're obligated to do. So uh, it is not a, an expression of civic commitment when you hear people talk that way. It's just the opposite. The more they talk about what they want to impose upon others, the less civic they are. That's that's interesting. It's very well put. Um, you know, another irony then along those same lines might be, and I, I wonder what you would say about this. Um, that we've, we've never had a more heavy rhetorical emphasis on diversity. Um, and yet we also have, we have so many complaints about a lack of unity. I mean, isn't there, how, how can we at the one in the same time <laughs> emphasize diversity and also lament our lack of unity? Aren't those things predictably well, antithetical? Let me take you on a little uh, digressive journey. Please do. In 2007, I was invited to, University of Colorado, the statewide system, to give a talk, a keynote address, actually, 
at their annual diversity summit. And so I traveled there and I prepared a talk, a fairly elaborate talk, in which I challenged the concept of diversity. This was a diversity summit, and of course it expressed what was happening throughout the nation in higher education and elsewhere. And I directly called into question the appropriateness of pursuing a mission of diversity. I did two things. One, I contrasted it with the meaning of university and asked why would you introduce the word diversity in the context of a commitment to university and expressed to them the ultimate implication that they were destroying the university's mission in the process. And then what I emphasized was to say this, this is highlighting difference where you want to highlight unity in the intellectual mission of the university, that we're all here pursuing the truth. The truth is a unifying dynamic. It doesn't require everyone to arrive at the same answer. It requires everyone to seek the right answer. And so that was the burden of the talk. And in the course of the talk, I then said to this very large audience, of primarily administrators from all over the state of Colorado, don't talk about diversity, talk about inclusion. Don't emphasize difference, emphasize the common mission, what we're all in it together for. So I'm not telling you that you need to abandon all of these various initiatives you've undertaken, but call them purposes of inclusion, not of division, difference, and diversity. So what followed from that? What followed was over the course of the next decade, not only there, but throughout the country, everyone became committed to inclusivity. But the difference is they didn't quite get the argument, for they expressed their commitment to a commitment to diversity and inclusion. <laughs> they wanted to be both and. <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't accept the reality that it was necessary to make a choice. And so it is that stubborn refusal to make a choice that leaves us where we are now. We're on the pretense of getting rid of the negative impact of diversity. They add to it the word inclusion, as if that makes any difference when you're still emphasizing differences. No, they're dividing us. They're separating us. They're making us subject to... I say, tyrannical control by the diversity managers. And the diversity managers have a stake in keeping us different, not in bringing us together. Right. Now there's a, an institutionalized interest in emphasizing our differences. Precisely. Is, is, is this sort of institutionalization, is, would that be why or one reason why in your mind uh, – the issue of race has become more fraught and troubled in recent years or seems to have been? Yes, because in recent times, it's become much more difficult to bring people together across lines of race into a common appreciation of what it is that makes us fellow citizens. We're abandoning the idea of citizenship in the face of group membership. We're substituting group membership for citizenship. And it's not that the people are unfriendly. You can still see many friendly interactions all across the country. In fact, you've probably never seen so many. <laughs> if you ask how different people get along, well, in the ordinary activities of life, they get along quite well. And it should be obvious to people who are out and about in this society. But the reality is we don't allow them in those moments in which they are re interacting casually 
and shall I say, even in a friendly manner, we don't imagine them to think of that as the work of citizenship because we keep insisting that they think of themselves first as members of their respective groups. And so people ask, well, I'll give you one another story. You don't mind digressions. No, please, you please do. That. So I'll give you another story. When this movie Harriet Tubman was released last winter, I was in Colorado at the time, and some folk there scheduled a showing at one of the cinemas, and some 300 people were coming to watch it in common and wanted to have a discussion afterwards, and they asked me to lead the discussion. I agreed to do it. I was happy to do it and was wonderfully impressed and affected by the movie. So we had a delightful conversation about it. And I was also asked the next morning to appear on a local radio station, a public radio station, to further that discussion. So before we go on the air, I have a conversation with the host. And the host is asking me the warm-up questions that you're familiar with doing what you do. And the warm-up questions included, before we went on the air, the question of uh, whether I would be able to explain to her audience, as well as to herself, something about the way black people, as I am, would experience this story of slavery that people like herself and others who were not so could not actually identify with or experience in the same way. And, And she was saying... You who are the descendants of slaves have a different perspective than we do. Now, she happened to be a woman of Jewish descent. And so I just looked at her for a moment in silence, and I looked at her and I said, have you forgotten Egypt? (laughs) And then she was silent. (laughs) She didn't get it immediately. Awkward silences. (laughs) But, But you must understand how important that is. I mean, what is more frequently emphasized in the Old Testament? Do not forget, do not forget what brought you out of Egypt. Do not forget the Lord your God. Do not forget who you were. And yet, she could sit there and say, I am supposed to remember slavery, which I've never experienced, my forebears did, while she can't remember Egypt. (laughs) She's forgotten it completely. And that pretty much describes the circumstance in which we find ourselves. So I went on to explain to her, and this I did on the air, says you must recognize one thing. There are no people anywhere on the face of the earth who have not descended from people who were previously slaves, coolies, peasants, kulaks, or some such thing. Everybody is a descendant of former slaves. So there's no reason to define one people as somehow carrying the chains, bearing the stigma of slavery. All have been there. And of course, the great human story is all can rise from there. Right. There is a liberation. Uh, uh, Would you tell us a little bit about your own background, Dr. Allen, where you grew up, what the circumstances were, how you came to be uh, a scholar, an academic well, I, I'll start at the tail end of that. I became to be a scholar by sheer stubbornness. <laughs> <laughs> the only because way to I, do it, I suppose. The only way to do it, and as I always told students, particularly those who want to go to graduate school, uh, don't do it unless you have to. Mm. And if you have to, don't stop. Mm. So, so I grew up, of course, uh, as you can imagine, in the era of uh, official segregation mm-hmm. in the South. Uh, had my learning, my early learning in segregated schools. 
left the state of Florida where I was raised by a Baptist preacher and mother uh, and went to college at Pepperdine in California. Oh, okay. So, so it's a really story quickly told in, in, in many respects. But I suppose its most important factor is that from an early period, learning was what mattered to me, mm. reading and learning. And I quickly came to see that this was be the course of my life. I, I did have a brief period where, like adolescence, I thought of other careers. I assumed I would become a doctor, and that's what I studied when I went to college. I was a pre-med student. But I, I quickly discovered several things that were important in reshaping and redirecting my course, such that I became, at one and the same time, both a political activist, early Goldwater campaigner, for example, Ronald Reagan, and then uh, subsequently someone for whom finding out what it meant to be good became the most consuming thing. And that meant studying political philosophy. And so that is how I came to be a scholar. Uh, how did you come by um, your view of America? Um, uh, and uh, was that inculcated in you uh, by your family in school, or is that something you came uh, came to later? Well, well, it's certainly true that I was bred with the ordinary exposure to the lessons of patriotism that characterized youth in my time, uh, a thing which seems to be going by the boards now, since students are more exposed to uh, debunking the story of American glory rather than building it up. So, yes, I was exposed to the ordinary lessons of patriotism. Uh, and, of course, as I said, I was an early reader, so the things I read reinforced the significance and the weight, the moral weight, of the examples of both great thought and great deed that I discovered in my reading. So, so that uh, I would say, yes, my family had a great deal to do with it. My family inculcated a sense of responsibility and also a sense of possibility, which one must never forget is a very important mm-hmm. part of responsibility. Yeah. People will be the more responsible, the more they conceive of something as possible right. for them. And so the fact that I could be raised in the segregated South and still have a sense of possibility yes, and still grow in a sense of responsibility is a very important testament to the education I had as a youth. Right. And it said, you don't have to live in ideal conditions to receive an ideal education. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, because uh, they, they rarely obtain. Um, yes. As, as uh, uh, very hypo-ideal the conditions were in Florida, I'm sure, at the time you were growing up. Um, let me, we'll end with just one more question for you, Dr. Allen. I don't know if you've ever... Uh, thought about this, but what advice would you have for donors today? Let's say donors uh, who have similar concerns as you um, about America, about our national character, about civil society. What what advice would you have for them if they want to do something good, productive, unifying for America? Well, I would think that they should follow the course that Alexis de Tocqueville identified in Americans. Their, their habit of coming together when there was a worthy work to be done. I mean, you, you know Tocqueville's description of this habit of association in the Americans of the 1830s. But what he meant by this habit of association was a habit of giving, contributing, lending one's gifts to worthy enterprises. 
And so you, you, what you do is you look about your community. And of course, in the 21st century, that means not only just looking within one's locale, but looking wherever in the broader society one can see concentrated, worthy endeavor. And one looks for something where one can make a contribution to something that's already well-shaped, or whether one can make a transformative contribution to something that needs shaping. And I think those are the two orientations givers need to have. They must ask themselves. Now, if I were the one asking this question, for example, I would typically say, well, I understand that my might is not going to steer this ship, but I know also that it needs fuel. And so I look for the things that allow me to contribute to fueling enterprises that are well understood. But there are other people who can do more than just contribute to enterprises well under steam, they can transform enterprises. They can launch new enterprises. They can give transformative gifts. So those are the two kinds of orientation that one should have. One should not squander by liberally sprinkling without discrimination. Mm. One, yes. And well, one should be thoughtful about them. And certainly, and I was just going to say, certainly Cure is one of those uh, enterprises, I think, that is uh, worthy of of a giver's attention, uh, and so I uh, thank you for your for your work there, and um, thank you for your time today. Uh, everyone, check out um, uh, Cure Center for Urban Renewal and Education uh, online. Uh, Dr. William Allen uh, serves as the COO there, and um, thank you, Dr. Allen, for your for your wisdom. It's very enjoyable. Thank you. So great to talk with you this afternoon. Take care. Bye-bye.